0: Hello, boys and girls. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where it is usually my job to deconstruct world-class performers across all different areas and industries, whether they be military, chess, sports, entertainment, or otherwise. Business, of course, the obvious one. This time, it is a conversation between friends, and I am extremely excited to have Kevin Kelly Back on the show. Kevin Kelly, I've said this before, might be the real life most interesting man in the world. I'm not making up what I'm about to read to you. He is senior maverick at Wired Magazine, which he co founded in 1993. He also co founded the All Species Foundation, a nonprofit aimed at cataloging and identifying every living species on Earth. In his spare time, Of course, I'm using that tongue-in-cheek. He writes best-selling books, many of them, co-founded the Rosetta Project, which is building an archive of all documented human languages, and serves on the board of the Long Now Foundation. As part of the last, he's investigating how to revive and restore endangered or extinct species, including the woolly mammoth. That is not made up, folks. (laughs) We touch on a lot of really fun stuff in this episode, And when Kevin arrived at my house to record, I had certain plans and I asked him what he wanted to highlight or focus on. And we just decided to catch up as friends. So this is very truly the type of conversation that led me in the first place many moons ago to ask, why don't I record these and share these conversations? Because I have so much fun catching up with friends like Kevin. And this is about as close to (laughs) a... A banter over drinks, as you're going to get uh, in my life, certainly, putting this out publicly. So I hope you enjoy it. We touch on all sorts of things, stories about Jeff Bezos and his email management approach, favorite books, uh, impactful books, tech literacy, why there are, quote, no VR experts, end quote, which is very inspiring. And, uh, there is a video that didn't make it into this interview, but Kevin mentioned afterward that I think is the history of Japan in nine minutes that I highly recommend everybody check out. We talk about the evolution of China, why he spent so much time in China, uh, artificial intelligence, network effects, virtual reality, GMO. We talk about everything. And if you think I am the only big fan of Kevin, well, of course that's not true. Here is a little bit of praise for his most recent book called The Inevitable. And these are real quotes. And I'll just, I'll, I'll truncate some of them. So here we go quote, anyone can claim to be a prophet, a fortune teller, or a futurist, and plenty of people do. What makes Kevin Kelly different is that he's right. And it goes on and on. That's David Pogue, many of you will know. Then we have quote, Kevin Kelly's been predicting our technological future with uncanny prescience for years. Now he gives us a glimpse of how the next three decades will unfold. That's Ernest Cline, author of Ready Player One, and then also referring to the book, The Inevitable. That is Mark Andreessen, who I had on the podcast recently, co-founder of Andreessen Horowitz, technological icon, uh, refers to it as an automatic must-read. So I hope you enjoyed this very informal and wide-ranging conversation with. None other than Kevin Kelly. And if you want to listen to a longer conversation where I dig into his bio and learn all sorts of nuggets that even I didn't know, then you can check out fourhourworkweek.com forward slash Kevin. Just go to fourhourworkweek.com forward slash Kevin. You can find previous conversations with him. Enjoy.
1: Kevin, welcome back to the show. It's always a pleasure, Tim. It's so great to be here. Fantastic. Low horizontal space. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to have you in,
0: in my house for a change. I remember still the very first quantified self meetup at your place in Pacifica with
1: however many people it was. There was 25, 20, 25 people that showed up uh, with a call to, if you think you're quantifying yourself, come. <laughs> and, and Tim was one of the people who arrived. It was a broad spectrum of folks. It was. It was really good. We had no idea what to expect. This is Gary Wolfe and I, probably eight or nine years ago. And um, that was the very first meeting of the Quantified Self movement. And uh, it was meeting my studio in Pacifica.
0: And where is Quantified Self now? What
1: is the scope of that? Yeah, there's like um, meetings in almost 300 cities around the world. Amazing. And we have an international conference once a year. So it's entered into vocabulary. I mean, it is people talk about it, uh, whether for or against it. There are, of course... Tons and tons of hardware sensors. The last CES before this year was called the Quantified Self CES because there were so many wearables, the Apple Watch being one of many. So uh, it's sort of entered into the mainstream in a certain sense. It remains to be seen where it goes next. Like, you know, you're probably not wearing your Fitbit today. I'm and not. Um, so people have spells with this where they find it useful and the question is how deep can these sensors go so that they're kind of something that everybody does? It's the new normal. I think we're still away from that. I don't
0: think we're that far away from it being opt-out though instead of opt-in. Right. And for most people, actually, you're already quantifying yourself because you have an iPhone with an accelerometer that has location tracking and so on. (laughs) Uh, The... The fascination that I have with your life extends in many different directions. But one is there's the Kevin Kelly futurist technologist and then there's the Kevin Kelly and they're one and the same, of course, but the the other, another aspect of you, which sends me your family letters. Mm-hmm. And I love getting these letters. They They read like fiction, quite frankly. I mean, it's it's straight out of like Rin Tin Tin. And I remember just recently getting a text from you and it was from a number I didn't recognize. And what what did it say? I just finished tracking elephants.
1: Temple, temple procession elephants in Kerala. <laughs> and I'm on my way to Oman, like tomorrow, whatever. Yeah. Would you like to come? And I was like, <laughs> I'm sorry. <It> Who is this?
0: <laughs> and the, you spend time with the Amish. We've talked yeah, about yeah, this in episodes, right. uh, in the first episode we did together, certainly. But at the same time, uh, we can get really granular and tactical, but first, before we uh, go to, I have a question about email and books and Hamilton and so on. Uh, why do you spend so much time in China? And you've you've written a little yeah. bit about this in your family letter updates. Yeah, yeah. But you seem to spend every year more and more time in China.
1: Yes. So, um, and why do they love you so much? Yes. Okay. So, <laughs> so, so, so there's a very complicated reason. My connection to China is is kind of deep. Starting with the fact that my wife is Chinese, so so, and my kids are all bilingual, and have spent time in China, but more importantly, I wrote a book called Out of Control twenty five years ago, or maybe more now, um, nineteen ninety four, I guess, and it was a little early because it was about how uh, the internet was going to happen before the internet really happened. It was about how these decentralized sharing things were going to, they were kind of almost biologically inspired and they were going to go into our built environment. And that's what I was talking about. And I was talking about all the rules that the internet was going to run by before there was an internet. And it kind of never really took off in the US, but it was translated into Chinese, crowdsourced translated um, about five years ago. And it was just at the right time when Pony Ma, Jack Ma, and all these guys in China were starting their internet companies, and they read the book in Chinese and were influenced by it and talked about it. And there's kind of a little bit of a her- social herd mentality in China. And so when these famous successes were talking about this book... I don't think we do that at all in the UK. Exactly right. <laughs> Everybody started to buy it. And so I became, for better or worse, kind of the Alvin Toffler of China. And they have this ridiculous idea that I'm predicting the future. Because, in fact, there was very little predictions in the book. It was just that I was talking about things that later on became common. So they have this idea. They always introduce me as the guy who invented the Internet or who predicted the Internet. And, of course the next person who introduces me have to, has to kind of ratchet that up even higher. <laughs> so it's, it's embarrassing at this point. But I have, I have a lot of fans in, in China who are trying really hard to be innovative. And and, and and they're kind of listening to people from the West, not just me, about how to do that in their culture. And so my book has become one of those books that they're reading to understand where it's going because they are rushing into that future so fast that they really need all the guidance they can get. For people who don't know Toffler, can you give a little context? So Alvin Toffler wrote a book called Future Shock in the 70s or 80s. I don't remember where it was. But he is in some ways for a long time was the most famous futurist. And even people who didn't know what he was talking about knew him as a futurist. So he was sort of like, if you heard the, if you knew about a futurist, it was Alvin Toffler even though you hadn't read his book. And I have the same thing in China where people might recognize my name and call me a futurist even though they've never read anything by him. So Alvin Toffler's book, The Future Shock, is still worth reading. He was the one who introduced the term future shock, which was that people would actually have a, there were kind of like a resistance or a, a reaction to the future in general just because things were changing fast. But he also invented in that same book or the next one, the idea, the term prosumer, which is the a person who is both producing and consuming, which we now call kind of user-generated content. But this idea that most of this economy would be prosumers, that was his idea in like the 70s or 80s. That's,
0: so he was way ahead. It's incredible.
1: incredible. Yeah.
0: How do you see China changing in the next, say, 10 to 20 years?
1: I believe that China is within five years on the cusp of actually having a global brand that of something that everybody in the world would, would want. Meaning that a Nike, a all in the blank. Yeah, exactly. Whether it's a car or a drone or a camera or some, some appliance or device or a digital thing that would be world class in its innovation in its quality and uh, like, like Sony became eventually for the Japanese. And um, the, the reason why I, th- I think that's because, as you said, I go there a lot. I'm going there probably every three months. And then I'm, I'm not just going to the big cities, which I do my talks at, but I always will take an extra week or two and go into the hinterlands, out to you know Yunnan or Guangxi um, or some other province, and um, I spent some time on the Silk Road way in the West where it's Muslim to get a sense of the other China and um, the, to gauge the depth of, of, of their dream. I'm kind of like, what do the Chinese want? They're going so fast. Where are they aiming for? And what they're trying to do is, is innovate. And they're coming to the West to learn how to innovate And I think like like we taught the Japanese how to do quality. You know, the Japanese says, how do we do quality? And so they went to Taylor, and all these guys gave them a list of do this and do this and do this, and you'll have quality. And the Japanese went through their list. They did it, and then they became kind of the world's expert on making quality. The Chinese are saying, how do we do innovation? And all the people from the West and myself, well, you need to have, you know, you need to have... um, uh, science fairs you 've got to have um, um, you know, innovation hubs you 've got to have startups, you have to have all this stuff and so they're, going, they're following they 're they're going down the checklist and they're going to, we're going to do that we're going to do that we 're going to do that and I think they will they are doing it and they are going to succeed in making something that we all want and um, i don 't know what it is, but I, I, I feel that they're they're really kind of doing all the things that they want to do, although there's two cultural characters that they haven't yet gotten to. And those two cultural ones is they haven't yet embraced failure and they still don't collectively question authority enough. And they're working on those and they know that they have to do those and they know those are difficult to do collectively. I mean, individually, of course, there's no problem. The Chinese come to America, they, they, they can do all those. But collectively as a culture, those are challenging for them. They're working on them you know, it'll be some more years, but I think they will do it. Now, if you
0: look at, let's say, Singapore, I know we're getting pretty China-focused here, but just as a sidebar, you were talking about visiting these sort of far-flung corners of China. Uh, China is, just for those people listening who haven't been, is a lot more diverse than you might think. And in fact, when you hear Chinese, the language, for instance, like Mandarin Chinese, it's basically Beijing dialect Chinese. And then on top of that, if you were to go to China, I mean, there are many ways to say uh, Chinese depending on where you are. <laughs> and it indicates a lot of how you feel. So you could say like, 中国话, right? So you could say like center, like the center country, right. middle kingdom right. language, right? Then you can also say like, Hanyu, right? Mm. So the, the language of the Han people, right? right. Who are the dominant 国语, ethnic group. Guoyu, if you go to Taiwan, right. now the mainlanders hate right, right. that. But if you say Guoyu, <laughs> that means kind of like, the the mainland talk. Right. I mean, it's I'm translating very liberally right. here, and uh, that of course really irks the Chinese who view mm-hmm. Taiwan as as a, sort of a rogue province right. that is nonetheless still a part of them, much like right. kind of Ke- Quebec or something in <laughs> uh, Canada. But the the other point that I was going to make is is or question rather that I was going to pose is if you look at say Singapore, so Singapore is has tried with some success for at least I would say the last 10 years to replicate Silicon Valley. And they've faced very similar cultural hurdles, but they have fantastic, at least my impression is financial resources. They have unilateral freedom to kind of do whatever they want. And uh, they have a well-educated population. They are very, very, very small, right? The, the, the sandbox is incredibly small. You can walk around Singapore in a day and then you're like, what what am I going to do here? I need to go to Malaysia to like have a new meal. Why will China differ? Is it just the sheer number of people that they have to choose from or to filter from, from which you can find like the Michael Jordans, the yeah. Jeff Bezos, the fill in the blank?
1: Absolutely. I think I think this is a, uh, an arithmetic problem. I mean, 1.4 billion people. By the way, there's like, you know, 0. 0.3 billion uh, North Americans. This is like, there's a billion more of them. I think there, there definitely is a critical mass A scale that the that the chinese have and it kind of it's almost kind of translated into a momentum that um you need and then that you have this critical mass of people um behind you doing and they get the kind of you were mentioning the diversity which singapore does not have as much of but they have a lot for being a little city but not compared to china you have a huge diversity in china you say not just the language but even ethnically geographically um, and so I think they have all those necessary requirements, the, the, the requisite complexity that you would need to make something. But there was, I would say two things. One is if they attempt to make another Silicon Valley, I think that fails. There are network effects in all these things. And the network effect says that the best get bigger and the bigger you get, the better you get, and the better you get, the bigger you get. And so you have this sort of compounding acceleration. And that means that there's only going to be one or two dominant players And by the way, AI is going to be a network effects phenomena. Social media is a network effect phenomena. And the kind of startup culture is a network effect phenomena in a particular category. So if they try to do a Silicon Valley for software, it will not happen. If they decide to, to take something, which I think they might, like robotics or aviation or biotech, and really... Um, develop and grow to sufficient scale, I think they could have a an equivalent. And right now they do have one in manufacturing. The right. Pearl River Delta area from Guangzhou to Shenzhen, Hong Kong. I mean, that's is, that is basically one. They do the world's best manufacturing in China. It's not because it's the cheapest. It's because it's the best. And they have this whole ecosystem with thousands and thousands of suppliers. And dynamic real-time you know inventory control and this whole thing um, and so they are now they do have the silicon valley for manufacturing in that area and they will continue to grow that and people are going there not because they're the cheapest in some cases they aren't but because they have the absolute best in manufacturing
0: how much of the and this is for those people listening very <laughs> Kevin and I decided to wing it. We had a, we had a conversation <laughs> prior to recording and, and this is just us talking about stuff that we're interested in. So, so I've been, over the last few weeks, discussing with folks visiting Silicon Valley and the origins of Silicon yeah. Valley. or trying my best to explain why Silicon Valley may have happened here and not elsewhere. Right. How much of Silicon Valley do you think can be attributed to a handful of companies that just happened to land here, like uh, Fairchild or some of these semiconductor mm-hmm. companies, the inability to enforce non-compete contracts in California, which I think mm-hmm. you know, allowed these people to then split off mm-hmm. and form many other companies mm-hmm. that m- that might have stepped on their former bosses right. territory or other.
1: Like, how would right. you, when somebody asks you why did Silicon Valley happen here? What yeah, do right. you say? So, so, so there were, there, were, there were reasons why, and there was actually a really good book on this um, by Emily Saxlin, I believe her name was. And she studied Route 128 around Boston and Silicon Valley and compared the two because Route 28 actually had a little head start in this kind of tech world. And why did, didn't they become the Silicon Valley? Why did, right. why why did, did Sand Hill Road kill yeah. them? And, and part of the reasons, there's, there's a number of different reasons, but one of them was because uh, I think you mentioned a couple, but there's others. And that was Silicon Valley was so far from the West Coast government, the D.C. government, that they, oh, the East Coast government. Excuse me, the East Coast government, D.C., that they um, had to find a whole bunch of different sources for funding. They, they, kind of, they, they invented the funding model, which uh, 128 around Boston was still locked into a lot of the government defense contracts. Right. Okay? And so that was a kind of a, a difficulty but a liberation for Silicon Valley where there was kind of really divorced from the government handouts or government subsidies, the government funding. Not completely, but enough to actually really develop this other alternative way of financing things. Venture capital. Right, venture capital. And so, um, and, and I think psychologically, there was other, this other division, this other kind of uh, divorcing from, you know, the whole California story of no adult supervision, not asking for permission, which started in 49ers and before. I think that also continued to influence the culture. So there was a, there was a cultural innovation and many people say that you know the the greatest invention from silicon valley was not the transistor or software it was this model it was this innovation model that that is the kind of meta the innovation, innovation model meaning the set of beliefs and maxims and so on right. that those people carried in their heads exactly right the, the 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 venture funding model the startup model this this method this culture that would reward uh, you know, the, the joke was, was, you know, you change a job and you walk across the street, you right? Know, it was like, and, and also the, the fact that you would encourage to change your job, no life, I mean, far from life along employment, but this idea that, you know, you've been here for a couple of years, time to move on. And so there's a whole bunch of things that are, are ingredients to that. And this book studied this in a kind of a more economically rigorous way of why did one surpass the other? And a number of
0: fascinating documentaries on this as well, and maybe it's all sort of hindsight logical, but yeah. in reality, ninety percent of it was just random collision of of people and and factors. I don't know.
1: I would also recommend John Markoff's book um, with this really trippy title called um, "What the Dormouse Said." What the Dormouse said said, which is about the hippie origins of the personal computer industry. Ah. So, so there's a whole another strand, which is very influential, which was the fact that the hippie generation embraced computers, unlike the other technologies that they were rejected, and they embraced them as from Doug Engelbart to Steve Jobs to a lot of the AI guys and a lot of the people in the early um, uh, computer industry had kind of a little of the hippie background, and they saw these things as augmentations, as, as basically as kind of like a new age way to augment the human. And so there was, you know, when the people left the communes, they tried the communes, they didn't work with their long hair, but they learned a lot of skills, including small business skills, making their candles and their sandals and their, you know, macrame, selling, you know, honey or whatever it was. So unlike people who went to college and never dropped out, who went to work for the big organizations, the IBM, they were at the craft fairs. Yeah. Getting business skills. Then when they came along, they transferred those directly into this idea of small businesses which were not cool in the I mean small business. If you told somebody in like the 50s that you were at a startup, that was a code for, like, I'm unemployed. I was fired. <laughs> right. Well, it's like consultant, right? Yeah, right. oh, you are yeah. yeah.
0: That was the the analog. Right. Uh, have you ever been to, I know I'm jumping around here, but to Christiania in, uh, I yes, think it's in, in Copenhagen. In Copenhagen. So there's this area for people who yeah. haven't been that, uh, called Christiania. I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm getting it right. roughly right. And it's effectively like an... Hippie slash anarchist commune in the middle of or around Copenhagen. And there are gates that you walk through, and it says here ends the European Union. Right. When you walk through, and and as you described, it's like people riding, like walking their kids around in wheelbarrows, making honey, <laughs> making candles. They have breweries. It's yeah. such a
1: funky experience. It's a little autonomous region. We start off with kind of like a squatter city that that is now semi legal in some some capacity, and they do have their own um, little government at this point. And there, there, and it's quite extensive. I mean, you could spend, you know, it's, it's not quite as, as big as Singapore, but it's, <laughs> it's not that far off. <laughs> right. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a worth, ex, uh, it's a worthy experiment to go visit because there are lots of alternative governments and structures, uh, and cultures are really important. And let me just say one thing, uh, about travel before we kind of go on to other things. Um, I travel a lot, not just to China, but to other places as, as much as I can, because I find that it really keeps my mind flexible. In fact, I, f- I find it that, that it's the most exercise I can do in a short amount of time than anything else. I mean, sure, I can learn a new language or do all these other things, but I find that you can do all those while you're traveling too. But travel really forces me to be flexible and to confront others and to think about things differently. And even whether if I have a different an idea there, it's just that habit of trying to think and come at things differently that I find really, really useful in addition to the fact that you, you actually literally are looking at your own culture from a different lens, but even just the general habit of trying to let go of what you think you know. And I go to China above all else because every time I go, I actually have decided I, learn, I know less than the last time. I mean, th- there's so much happening there. It's happening so fast. It's so big. The Chinese have no idea what's happening and I, I think I know something, and then I go and I realize I don't know what's happening here either. I know less than that last time I visited, or it's a diff- different country, <laughs> right? Exactly. And the last time you were there. right? And so I so I, I I think travel is so important, particularly to young people, that I really believe that it should be subsidized by uh, at the federal level. Yeah, I, th- I think gap I think gap years should be mandatory. I think uh, I think a two year national service should be a requirement, and you can fulfill it any way you want, including. Going overseas and working at the Peace Corps or something, a visa, whatever it is, take two years. You want to go to military? Fine. You want to go to inner city? Fine. You want to go overseas? Fine. We'll pay you for two years. Nothing would transform America as having uh, an overseas experience for the majority of people who, by the way, don't have passports at this moment. I agree. Could not agree
0: more. And... We, we agreed on a few other things earlier when we were talking about <laughs> podcast questions and I was making some funky mushroom coffee, not of the psychedelic sort that I'll describe some other time, but you suggested that I ask people about their uh,
1: email systems. How do they handle inbound email? Right, and Because, because this is, for ordinary people, they get a lot of email, but if you have any level of success or notoriety or... A prominence dealing with the incoming in a sane way that is actually works is is a real mystery to me, So people like yourself or even the other people who get a lot of demands on them, how do you actually deal with email? Do you have more than one account? if you have more than one account, how do you handle it? Um, do you have your assistant involved,
0: et cetera, et cetera? There are many different factors yeah, right, right. and you mentioned you had a conversation with Jeff Bezos yeah. and I said, we have to save that for the podcast. <laughs> So now I have to ask, what was this
1: conversation? So uh, I had the opportunity to ask Jeff at some point about his email because I, you know, I wanted to send it It's like, who, who do I send it to? How do you do your email? He says, well, I have, I, and this, again, I think this is probably a 10-year-old answer, so I can't verify that this is happening. But he said, I, I finally figured out what to do. And so here's what it is, is anything you send to me, and his actually email is fairly well circulated. He says, anything you send to me, my assistant will read, and they are, my assistants, plural, will read, and they're in charge of responding or doing something with it. Right, vetting. Whatever, whatever the appropriate, re- no, to give the appropriate response. And But I also read it all. And since I don't really normally answer it unless, I, I, you know, there's something. Is it, and then if, if there is something that I want to respond to, I'll respond to. So the worst case scenario is that you'll get two replies from me, from my assistant if it needs to be replied to and me. So in other words, he sends everything. So everything goes through in a parallel circuit. Once to his assistants and they deal with has what has to be. And most of it is probably going to be ignored. Those that, that need to be done something, they may nudge him or whatever. And he's also looking at it and he can reply personally to it. And he said, the worst is you might get two. And so that. That seems to be. I mean, you know, he has one email, and I have gotten responses to that email. And sometimes it just kind of goes, and obviously he doesn't need to respond to it. Into the ether, right?
0: Do you still have? Because this, this is something that I've had to get increasingly better at. Because the the tools and tactics, as I laid them out, for instance, in the four hour work week, still work very well. However, I've had to develop sort of more nuanced. <laughs> Uh, layers on top of what I did because now it's thousands of email right. coming and hitting right. me, my assistants, everyone and deciding how to vet and use right. tools right. like boomerang to schedule things to be set in the future right. or right. automatic follow-ups. you name it, moving a lot of internal communication to Slack so that right. it's separate right. from the inbox, et cetera. Do you still have an assistant uh, and a separate researcher?
1: I do. I have an assistant and a full-time uh, researcher But they don't read. They don't do my mail, so I do all my own mail. What is your researcher currently helping you with? If you can talk about it, yeah, I would love to talk about it. In fact, we just had a review uh, today. So um, I've been working on a project. A review, meaning that you we have an annual review. Mm -hmm. I have an annual review with um, the two people who work for me, and so once a year we sit down and we you know do an employee review. We talk about the past year and we evaluate what's coming up and so um what uh her name is Camille and what Camille's working on is um we are gathering every long-term forecast that we can find anywhere in any of the industries or published anywhere we 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 we're bringing them together and and we're going to try to integrate all the long-term forecasts into kind of one integrated forecast of the, of the future long-term meaning 10 years or more. So forecast could be
0: anything from, this is how we see gasoline prices moving in the next 20 years to, this is how we anticipate air travel to the number of
1: seats filled in air travel to move in the next 10 years. And we're going even broader, like the future of sports, number of attendees at sports games, at, you know, transportation, going through the whole list of things. So she's been working on it for six months, and we probably have another six months of what I I call the official future. Having been trained in GBN, which was a uh, a consultancy that did um, strategy for global companies, the, the mantra was that all predictions are wrong and generally, particularly official futures. So there's official extrapolation. You kind of take what's been happening for the past five years and you extrapolate. They are invariably not correct because, they don't, because things jig and jag and new things you know, are invented that kind of disrupt uh, the, the pattern. But my premise is that while they're wrong, that they're still useful. And if they, they would be particularly useful if they were integrated together. So you would say, well, here's the, you know, the future of transportation looks like this and the future of auto, uh, you know, electric cars looks like this. And these both can't be right. We have to kind of, they have to kind of inform each other in some ways. So that's the next step of kind of integrating and have these official futures inform each other and to see if I can make a scenario that's more useful out of the sum of the parts, So she has been um, working on that for six months and she also did research when I was doing the big cover story for Wired on VR. So for five months I was trying out every single VR headset input content that I could and I wrote this article and the way Wired works like other magazines is they have this fact checking which is sort of in some ways, kind of a a legal is cover, cover, your, ass cover, ass cover your, your ass thing, which means that every single statement that I make has to be verified, verified yeah. and proven, <laughs> like a scholarly article, like a footnote, which is like totally insane, but that's what you have to do. So there, so we're involved in like you know, I, you say something that seems obvious to you, you know, there's, I don't know, some statement of uh, VR is, re, you know, people get sick in it or they have motion sickness. Can you prove that? Where does that come from? How do you know about that? And so these things, so she was did a lot of that hard legwork in finding the documentation for these kinds of statements that aren't footnoted in the article, but actually are footnoted in when I turn over to them. So I have a completely scarly footnoted article. People don't realize that, but behind the scenes with New Yorker and Wired and places like that, there is a huge amount of, uh, there, there's a full-time staff that, Will fact check every single fact. Oh, yeah, it's a big dedicated staff. By the way, books do not do that, and newspapers do not do that. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, we, we spent a lot of time talking yeah, right. about all of that. So, so, so going back to my assistant, so I have a researcher who does all that kind of research, and anything else I need uh, research on, which I mean, that's the main thing, but there's uh, this was my one dream was to have somebody, and this was, you know, kind of even before Google that I could ask, you know, I do a lot of travel. And so they sometimes do research on simple things like, is it okay, is it a sane idea to rent a car in Oman? (laughs) Or should I get a driver? Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, so you kind of troll the the trip advisor boards or lonely. The State Department. It's just kind of looking looking around. Yeah, so there's that kind of stuff. Wow. How do you decide, aside from
0: those types of logistics, how do you, how do you choose projects for your, your researcher to help you with? And you could delve into anything that you'd like. So how do you choose?
1: I mean, projects in general? Yeah. What am I going to do next? Sure. Yeah, how do you choose what you're going to do next? Okay, so this, this has taken me a long time to get there. But what I, one of the questions that I, well, you know there's, you've seen these Venn diagrams of things that you like to do things, things that other people idea. need. Yeah. But uh, for me, there, there's actually a third important circle. And that's not just like things that I want to do. So that, that has to be a, a key thing that, you know, that I'm good at doing. That's the second thing. Because there's lots of things I would have fun doing, but I see I'm no good at. But, so they have to be good, um, I'm good at. And then there's kind of like, you know, maybe would be useful to other people. But the, the, this other circle that's become more important to me is can anybody else do it? Yeah. Right. If somebody else can do it, I am not going to do it. And I spend a lot of time trying to give away ideas and trying to talk about what I'm doing in the hope that someone else comes along and says, oh, I'm doing that. And that's like, oh, whew. what a relief, because now I'm not going to do that. <laughs> you know, it's like I'm talking about this future stuff. If I can find out someone else out there, and they write to me and they say, I'm doing that. I was like, oh my gosh, thank you. Now I don't have to do that. <laughs> Because And so what I'm, trying to f- what I'm trying to look for is really good things that I would enjoy, that other people value, that nobody else is going to do, that I can't convince anyone else to do. They think it's a terrible idea, or they think it's a lousy idea. But for some reason, I think it's a good idea, and I can't get anyone else to do it. I can't talk. I, no one will steal it from me. <laughs> You're trying to give it away. I'm no trying to give it. it away. No one's going to take it. It's <laughs> like, all right, I have to do that now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's uh, that's how I feel about books. So I get yeah. asked, "Well, why don't you write a book on this? Why don't you write a book on that? And I'm like, there are already plenty of good books on yeah. both of those subjects. Right, right, right. And uh, it has to be something that bothers me for so long. It right. seems like such a crackpot idea for right. everybody else. I can't buy it anywhere to right. scratch the itch. And I'm like, okay, well... That's that's me. Just, just to like <laughs> fix that neurosis, right. you know, that neurosis, I have to address it. Uh, so the title, uh, titles are important. And you mentioned the title of a book just a few minutes ago before we started recording that caught my attention because we were looking at the slow creep of books and piles on my my table, uh, which is is ironically right next to this uh, Marie Kondo book on uh, the, the the Japanese magic of cleaning up. I can never let's, remember the name of the let's book.
1: Let's be more accurate. The book about cleaning up is on a stack of other stuff. No, exactly, which I took
0: a <laughs> photograph of because it, it's a lot better than it was. It used to be kind of like the trash compactor in Star Wars <laughs> and this and this this book on Japanese decluttering or just kind of surf this like yeah. wave of floats and jets around my house. It's a lot better now. Uh, but you
1: you mentioned that another book uh, called All Too Much. It's All Too Much and you, it actually preceded her, her book, at least in English. And um, I thought it was so valuable that it, in this really huge book I did called Cool Tools, I listed it as the very first tool, which was how to deal with all this stuff, how not to have a bunch of stuff. And I actually found, I gave it a whole page because I thought the, the message were, was so profound because it's not about like tidying up and cleaning. He, it's, it's, he, he talks about the fact that um, if you have something that is valuable, you need to show it. Hiding things. If, you're, if, you're, if, you're, if you have collections and, you're, and they're not visible, then they're not working for you. So it's not against collecting things, but if, if you're collecting, they have to be prominent. They have to bring you joy. They have to be doing something in your life. And that what you want with decluttering is basically to remove the junk so you have room for your treasure, mm-hmm. and all these kinds of things where it's it's not about the stuff. It's about your mental state, your your openness to new ideas, and the clutter is in some ways prohibiting your self-fulfillment, you're, you're the best you, because it's hiding, you're, you're, you're buried under it. And so there is this sort of, I wouldn't call it pop psychology, but it's a, it, it is a little bit about trying to get at the core of what you are about, what your house is about, what your life is about, and making room for these things. And the kinds of techniques that he uses are very similar to what the Japanese gal, I can't remember her name. Kondo. of, which is, you know, you pick up something and... Does that, does that object give you joy? Actually, what she does is differently. She says, take everything in your house, and she goes by categories, put it, all your clothes in the center, make a big pile, and by default, all, you're going to get rid of all of them. And at, but as you're going through, if you pick up something that gives you joy, that, that's what you keep. Everything else is just gone. And the same thing about all your other possessions, you know, category by category, you decide they're all by default, going to be gone, and you only retrieve those things that, when you, that give you joy. And that's a little bit what he's talking about in the same kind of profound way.
0: I feel like that, I, so I, I did try this. I gave it a good college try, and I did find certain aspects of it very helpful. But then the joy part, I picked up, I remember like these printouts that were like legal documents or tax returns, and I'm like, <laughs> not joyful. This is not giving me joy, but it would be very neglectful and irresponsible of me to throw these out. Now what, Marie Kondo? <laughs> the topic of simplicity is one that I try to consistently return to because our lives tend to entropy, yeah, right? right. Uh, what books or resources have you found helpful for simplifying your life? And if that's not the right question, you can tackle it a different way.
1: Well, I, I think um, it's all too much. This kind of decluttering in, in her book are, are, are actually helpful in simplifying things. Um, I... I'm maybe not as a big a fan of simplicity as you are. I think um, our lives are inherently more complex than our parents and our grandparents. And our children and their grandchildren and future generations will be more complicated. I think that is generally the drift of this thing we call life and evolution and technology. is, And they're going to become more and more complicated. And I think, you know, right now people or uh, some people are very upset over our kind of um distracted manner or the, you know the way that we kind of skip through or surf through the nets and the internet and social media I actually think that's a very sane uh, response to the environment where we we are kind of we we have to scan because things are much more complicated and we'll do more scanning in the future so i i I think there maybe there's kind of like Appropriate kinds of complexity, you know, complications. Maybe we avoid and complexity is is okay. I, I mean, I, the thing about life is that it's it surfs a very fine line between rigid order, which is death, and complete chaos. And there is this sort of there is this edge of chaos. They call it this edge where there's this sort of a particular kind of falling forward, a p- particular kind of chaotic order or orderly chaos or something. And I think, um, so it's not rigid simplicity and it's not just overly chaotic complications. There is a, there is a very fine, a variety of complexity that is not just healthy, but it is the, the source and the genius of, I think health, wealth and everything else that we want. So I, th- I think that I might be able to
0: ask a better question, which is, in face of the notifications and social media pings and so on and so forth, a lot of people feel anxious. Right. And they feel conflicted and overcommitted. Yeah. Right. Maybe you just mask it really well, but I've never had that feeling from you. I've never gotten the impression that you feel those things. Why, why not? Yeah.
1: and I mean, are there particular rules or ways that you... I, you there, there is one thing and and that is, um, and maybe this is kind of a Zen thing, you know, the Zen mantra is, um, sit, sit, walk, walk, don't wobble. I haven't heard that before. Yeah. So this is the idea that, okay, when I'm with a person, that's total priority. Anything else is multitasking. No, 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 no. It's just like, so I have a priority, you know, the people-to-people, person-to-person, it trumps anything else. And if there's something else going on, you know, whatever. I have, I have given my dedication to this. If I go to a play or a movie, I am at the movie. I am not anywhere else. It's like 100%, I'm going to listen. If I go to a conference, it's like I'm going to go to the conference.
0: That's true. I've, I've never seen you on a device while right. with or near other people. Right. Now that I think about it.
1: And even at Wired, before, I had, I had the rules like of... Um, If I'm with a person to person and the phone rings, no, never. If I'm on the phone and the notification rings, no, I'm on the phone. And so I I think this sense of, uh, and you can kind of have a priority if you want, whatever it is, but it's sort of like, I'm going to give, I'm going to be present, whatever that is at that time. And everything else is sort of, we'll deal with it later. Sit, sit, walk, walk, don't wobble. Right. What books have you found
0: have given you and I always come back to books. It doesn't have to be books. Sources, something that people listening could look at themselves or listen to, have given you rules like that or maxims or sayings that have proved very useful.
1: Well, uh, you know, I come from religious tradition and I actually think some of the religious texts are very good for that. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it's very hard to kind of read the Bible all the way through. By the way, I recommend that you do that at least once in your life, no matter who you are. Sit down. Well, it takes a long time, but read through the Bible and read, you know, read a modern version. It'll take you some time. It is the probably the most amazing things you haven't read yet. It's highly disturbing, highly uh influential. And whatever your opinion about it is, it's you're gonna be wrong. Whatever you think, you know, whether you think it's the greatest, I mean, read it through. It's an amazing book. And I have to say the same thing about the Quran. Try to read, um, you know the 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 sufi stuff i there's nothing that i enjoy more than at night reading rumi yeah i mean it's just something about it just he's he's a sufi mystic from afghanistan who is a transcendent uh thought leader maybe like seneca or something he has tremendous wisdom and so i think the wisdom of the ancients in general have a lot to to offer us and i think you know the reading the zen parables you know sound of one hand clapping, Zen mind, beginner minds, these kinds of things. For me, that kind of wisdom, it's not like um, you have to be slavish, obedient to them, take what you find useful, move on. But I found a lot of use in, in, in those texts. So we have, in a
0: sense, these timeless philosophies and belief structures that can help us make better decisions and so on then we have subject matter expertise uh, of different types that can become more or less relevant over time. And we were chatting before we started recording about a question that I get asked all the time, which is, what industries should I be paying attention to in the next three to five years? What skills should I learn? And most of these are business-focused, but what skills should I learn to be able to take advantage of new non-obvious industries in the next 10 to 15 years? And you mentioned, uh, and I might be getting the wording here, off, but sort of tech literacy or techno literacy, techno literacy, different types of literacy. Right, right, Can you right,
1: elaborate right. on that? Right. So, so let me put again a little bit of contents, uh, uh, context. I, I would really, I'll talk a bit more, but let me just preface and say that I do talk a, a bit about this in my new book called The Inevitable. Yeah. Which is, the, I have one of the few copies which has, right here in Tim front of Tim has one of the first copies off the press. And um, it's talking about the next. 20 to 30 years, mostly about digital technology and the trends that I consider non-negotiable, inevitable in the sense that there's not much we can do about it. There's a lot we can do about the specifics, but not about the bigger trends. They are coming whether we want to... And the subtitle, not.
0: so the inevitable subtitle, Understanding the 12
1: Technological Forces That Will Shape right. Our Future. And one of the first chapters talks about this question of um, skills. I think that the... Specifics, like what language should I be learning in school or what you know, business skills should I have? I think what I would think are more useful and what I counsel even my own kids about are these kind of meta level skills, the skills of learning how to learn, the skills of uh, learning how technology in general learns or operates, which is what I would call the techno literacy skills. And so an example of a techno skill is that the cost Besides the initial purchase cost of a technology, whatever technology you buy, you now have a maintenance cost. And that maintenance cost is like making sure that it's upgraded or integrated or just maintaining it in some capacity. So there's, there's several levels of the cost. It's not just how much does it cost to buy, but how much does it cost to maintain in your life? How, there's, there's a price to um, dealing with, with it when it breaks down, upgrading that there is sort of like owning a boat a little bit. You know. It's like not the initial cost of the boat. It's the maintenance that really is the costly part. And the same thing with anything that we buy. So if you get something into your house, there's now a relationship with that thing. You, it's like having a pet or an animal or something. You have to deal with it and its interaction with other things. That's just a kind of an elementary thing. There's, there's a sense in which um, there's also negative costs too. In, in terms of whatever it is that we have, there's going to be some downside. And journalists are usually pretty good about kind of identifying. You should pay attention to what people say about the negative aspects of it because they are real. It's not that they should um, discourage you from using that technology, and I don't argue that it shouldn't, but we should be aware of them and, uh, and, and willing, in a certain sense, to pay the price. What would be an example, a clear
0: example to you, of a technology with a downside that perhaps is underappreciated or downsides that are underappreciated.
1: Automobiles kill one million humans on earth every year. Now, if imagine if we were going to introduce automobiles and say, here's here, we get cars. It'll kill one million of us. Do you want to drive it? (laughs) You know, not the best pitch I've heard. Well, I know, but it's what I'm (laughs) saying. I'm saying, uh, there are all these hidden, there's and, and but but that's real and this is one of the reasons why I think um, driverless cars are going to uh, even though they will I mean so here's the thing the first person the first car of driverless car that kills a person people will go completely bananas but we're killing one million of them ourselves and there, and so that's not registered for some reason it's like. That doesn't count? Yeah, they've lost the, the reference point. Right, exactly. And so, um, so so, there is going to be, the. I mean, driverless cars will kill some people, but they're not going to kill as many as we kill. And so in, in evaluating that and evaluating whether you want to get in, and there's, there are going to be, by the way, ethical issues with driverless cars because we give ourselves a pass when we have an accident. It's like, oh, I didn't have time to react. I didn't, wasn't thinking. But the driverless car has to be programmed, and so you have to give it a preference. If, it's, if there's an accident, do you give the passenger safety preference over the pedestrian? Right. Or do you give the
0: three elementary school kids... The trolley problem. R- exactly. Right. The, the trolley but, problem.
1: But the thing is, is that... When over you go, the we, like seven people right, who are right. 70 years old. Right. And so when you go to buy a car and Volvo says, hey, we give passengers preference...
0: You know is that ethical is the programming right one of right. the selling points right. <laughs> you
1: are twelve percent less
0: likely to be sacrificed exactly in compromising <laughs> environments
1: so i think there's i think there are um and so techno literacy is like say we, we need to be cognizant of this that there's costs that there's ethical dimensions to this that um and and there's there are other technoliteracy literacy skills like the fact that um You don't really want to learn a language, a programming language. You want to learn how to learn a language because you're going to have to relearn it later on. And you you want to understand that, you know, how, that when you buy something, it's kind of immediately obsolete, right? It's always by definition. And so one of the things I recommend is like you want to buy things like five minutes before you need it, not ever before. There's no sense in kind of hoarding this stuff because it's just going to Change just in time, just in time, just in case, exactly. And so there, there, there are, there are, there are things. I think those kinds of of skills are going to be much more useful. And I think I might have said this before, but when I was at Wired and we were doing hiring, first of all, I never looked at anybody's educational background. I looked at their experience. And the motto that I had in my head was, "You hire for attitude, and the skills will will train. We train for skills." I wasn't really hiring people for skill set per se, it was more their attitude, their, their orientation, their technical literacy, their, their ability to, to learn and adapt. That was far more valuable than the particular skills they had. Now at some level skills play into it and that's true. There is a certain skill requirement, but I think maybe as important is, is the, these other levels
0: now it makes me think of this i think it's a bit from neil gaiman's commencement speech make good art but he says at some point he realized that uh, there there are three important components if you want to keep a job and it is get along with people have people like you uh deliver things on time right be good at your job. And he said, the good news is you don't actually need all three. He said, you just need two out of the three. If you have two out of the three, they'll keep you around. <laughs> it's like, do things on time,
1: have people like you or be really, really good. It's like, you only need two of the three. Well, but- yeah, do things on time is, 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 is really great. But in terms of, in terms of, um, in terms of- other people who are self-starter like if you don't have a job if you're trying to do something the equivalent of that is just do lots of the st- do lots of it over and over and over again and i can't emphasize how important that doing it a lot is because um, the only way to get through, the only way to find out what you're really good at or what no one else can do at is basically, that's a lifelong project. That's You have to throw a lot against the wall. You have to you do a lot and a lot. And sticks. it's the more failures you have, the more successes. There's, it's a really very clear uh, ratio that's linked. And you you just have to do a lot. That's the only way you can find out what you're good at because you know how many college kids, young people coming out, they say, I don't have a passion. I don't know what I'm good at. The only way that I know to find out your passion is to actually work to it by trying lots of stuff and becoming, you know, expert at something.
0: Right. Well, in a way, I mean, this is, uh, might sound cliched, but, you know, instead of discovering yourself, you're creating yourself. And so these, right. these kids are like kids sound like such an old man, but these, these young people who graduate from college and then they want to sit down and like journal for 10 minutes or take a multiple choice test to figure out their Myers Briggs and have their kind of assignment for passion. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that's not yeah. how this works. No. Like you're not, you're not an ice. You're not a block of ice. That's being chipped away to reveal the sculpture underneath, like you're actually just like a small piece of clay and all of the other bits and pieces need to be added. Mm-hmm. And there is a kernel of it that is you, but you need to construct that. And the way you do that is by doing these experiments and right. trying X, Y, and Z and everything else in between. And it's, um, I still feel like I'm doing that. And its
1: well, I'm, I'm still doing that. Yeah. I'm, I'm almost 65. I'm still doing that. And, and the people that I respect the most in my circle are still doing that they're still asking themselves at 70 years old what am i going to do when i grow up you know i mean basically it's like and who am i what am i here for and should i be doing this and and that's actually why they i respect them so much is because they're still constructing their life rather than say discovering it or finding it they're they're constructing it i think it's a really wonderful metaphor you said uh you said a while back when we were uh just
0: putzing around in my living room, looking at the living wall and whatnot. You said there are no VR
1: experts. Right, right. So, so, so one of the things, cause I, so I wrote this big cover story on Wired well, About VR, and a couple years ago I wrote about AI. And by the way, these are the kinds of things that are in my book, The Inevitable, where I'm looking at these things which are coming. So AI is coming in a big way, VR is coming. The particulars of how it arrived, who owns it, how it's structured, those are not inevitable. Those aren't predictable. And we, they make a lot of difference to us. So we have a lot of choice in this thing. But one of the things I want to emphasize is that um, right now, basically, there are no VR experts. It's, it's completely open. We, we, really, we, collectively, humans, have no idea how VR is going to work, what content will really work best in VR, what the necessary amount of equipment will be what that kind of consumer breakthrough version will be. And even though there is VR today, the VR today is good enough to improve. So it hasn't been good enough to improve, but now today with the Oculus and the Vive and this other stuff it's now good enough to improve for reasons like could talk about and it will improve very fast. But there's no experts. And so that means that a person out there listening to this could easily become a VR expert. Okay, There's really no AI experts. There are a lot of people working on AI, but but compared to what we'll know in 20 years from now, we don't know anything. And so it's actually not that difficult to become an AI expert. So let's say someone listening
0: said, you know what, I've read about, I've read about VR. This is really exciting. I'm tired of my comparative literature major. I'd like to switch gears and and really immerse myself. Right. What would you suggest they do? If they seemed earnest, intelligent, they were committed, they were like, I want to become
1: a VR expert or AI. You could pick your pick. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there was a guy, um, uh, Kent Bai, who um, runs the Voices of VR podcast Uh, two years ago. He quit his job and he decided, he's interviewed 400, he's done 400 interviews of every, almost every person working in VR. And, it's, and that's, his business, that's his job now. Is he's, he just does interviews of the voices of people working in VR. He's kind of doing the journalistic side. I, I would say very, very easy, which is you purchase some gear and you start making VR. You actually do it. And it's you buy you'll get a pair of Google goggle Google um, what's they call Google VR the cardboard, mm-hmm. which you can get for free, and use your phone and start making VR and you'll learn more about it than than reading about it than working whatever it is and trying to try to make, try to make a, a VR experience do do make something for five minutes. The issues are incredible. There's like lighting issues. There's continuity issues. There's, we don't even have a vocabulary for editing. I mean, for like, you know, like in cinema, we have a whole well, syntax of what a cut is. Right. How, you know, how do you do a jump? A penning a, a shot of X, Y, and Z. We don't have any, of, none of that really works in VR. Doesn't mean the same thing. So we have to, somebody has to invent all those. The interface, the, the mouse, there's no mouse for VR. I mean, there are people who have invented it, but there's nothing that has, worked like the windows and the mouse that Engelbart made. So there is so much that has to be invented um, and that somebody who just decides that they're going to work at this every day or every day on weekends or whatever it is can make a huge advance. And I think you need to do it, you know, you'll need to do it because you love it. Because, it's, you know, it's, there's, this is not economics. We're talking about right. investing into mastery. It's,
0: uh, I was having a chat with Mark Andreessen recently and, uh, he said, what did he say? I just had a complete mental blank. (laughs) I need more tea. He said a lot uh, lot of very interesting things. Uh, and uh, you'll remember it. In a you minute. will hear about them another time, <laughs> because I just had a complete <laughs> premature Alzheimer's moment. So that's that's going to have to be a footnote for later. Uh,
1: <laughs> uh, what are you most excited about right now? I'm going to take that kind of in the professional sense of yeah. You can uh, take it in any sense of no? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Um, well, in the personal sense, I'm still very excited about Asia. Asia is a combination for me of the future. You were asking before about, I go to China to, to hear what the future will be. And also because I have a love for the the Asian traditions that are disappearing very, very fast and I'm trying to record them. So I, I go to Asia to photograph these disappearing traditions, ceremonies and whatnot. And Tim was just joking that I just came back from Kerala, India, where I was uh, photographing these uh, massive elephant processions that the temples have with 40 elephants parading through and all kinds of ceremonies that, um, and I don't know how long they can continue that. It's a very kind of expensive, elaborate spectacle and, um, not just in one place, but throughout the, 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 the royal areas. And it's like other areas that as they become modern, some of these traditions become hard to hold on to. And I'm not, not nostalgic about wanting to keep them or protect them. I just want to record them because I think they will go away. So that excites me. I'm working on another book and that's personally something I love to do for joy. Just for, for, that's the only reason, just because I love to record and document these things and see them. But the other thing I'm excited about in the kind of world of the future is AI. I can't under... I can't overestimate or over enthuse on the disruptive nature uh, that I think AI will be in the broadest sense. And um, many people use analogies, and I have several analogies, but the one that maybe would make sense to most people was the industrial revolution was this huge, huge thing from the world of agriculture where we used our own physical muscles and the muscles of animals to get things done. And then we had this thing where we automated that with artificial power. Artificial, you know, electric power and steam power and later gasoline power. This is this is artificial animal power, artificial human power that we used to uh, to make our lives so much easier and so much different. I mean everything our whole lives are really the fact that this house has been built using this automated power. I mean, imagine if you had to make it by hand. It's just, it just insane. We couldn't do it. So so behind this, so all these motors and, and um, the harnessing of that power propelled this industrial revolution in the modern world that we have. Well, you know, the 150 years ago, farmers would take a, uh, an item, like a hand pump, and say, well, we'll make it electric. So they took things and they electrified them. What we're doing now, we're at the very beginning of it, is we're gonna take all the things that we electrified and we're not gonna cognify them. We're gonna add intelligence to them, everything. And not just things that that are electric, but even inert things, like a chair, like a door. People laugh and they say, you put a computer in a door 20 years ago or 30 years ago? Yes, go to a hotel today, there's a computer in your door. There's a little card reader. So we're going to just keep adding this, and it's this going to get smarter and smarter in multiple different ways. And so um, that intelligence what I call artificial smartness is not like human intelligence. It's like artificial power. It's like synthetic learning. It's just very specific, narrow, brute force kind of intelligence. And so while we could think of our lives as having, like when you drive a car, it's what, 240 horsepower? You have 240 horses at your disposal. And we're gonna do the same thing with AI. Like you're gonna have like 250 minds right here to do whatever it is that you want to think about or or, or solve. You just hire this. And so it'll be like electricity in a sense that you're not gonna make the AI, you're gonna buy it. It'll be on like the cloud. Amazon Web Services. Exactly. It'd be like Amazon. Exactly. Be, in fact, Google is now selling. Their AI you can purchase AI from Google today and that's what we'll do yes you get 60, sixty cents sixty cents per thousand instances really yes huh. and Google AI can do amazing things like it can look at a picture and tell you what's going on in a picture and you can actually ask it questions you can say is there what's that person wearing what color is that is that hat what are they doing with it and, and they'll tell you back sixty cents a thousand so what would
0: your response be uh, to those who have fear of the rise of the machines, yeah. Skynet and uh, creating the summoning of demons that we can't control, et cetera. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, um, how would you respond to that or comment on it? I would say, first of all, it's possible, but very unlikely. Why do you say that? There are a lot of, a lot of reasons. One is, is that... um. The, the, the general trend is is that automation, including this AI, will create more jobs than it destroys. And it will take a lot of jobs away. I think in 20 years, at least 50% of the people driving trucks will no longer drive trucks. And by the way, truck driving is the most common occupation in the U.S. Did not know that. Yeah. So 50% of those won't have jobs, especially long-haul trucks and stuff like that. So, so there will be jobs. I like to think there are tasks that are going to be taken away. So automation, including white collar tasks, like, you know, uh, mortgage, people working in bank, all this kind of, all anything. If you're, if you're, uh, if you have a job that's defined by productivity or efficiency, that's a job that's going to go to the AI. That's a So productivity is for robots. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Productivity is for robots. What humans are going to be really good at are asking questions being creative and experiences. So that's almost everything in our world right now is becoming cheaper and cheaper in cost. The few things that are increasing in costs are all experience-based. Tickets to a concert, tickets to Hamilton, tickets to a travel, uh, personal coaching, a nursing care, you know, weddings, all the, Those are the things that are going up in price because they're all, they're, they're not, Commodifiable they 're not manufacturable they 're they are experience based they 're not efficient. science is terribly inefficient you 're not learning anything unless you 're making mistakes that 's inefficient by definition. innovation is inherently inefficient, so we will move to those things and they all all have to be highbrow again you know uh, nursing care uh, being a companion for someone, um, giving them attention giving them an experience. So there's there's a big room there, but I think we're going to move away from things that are being measured in terms of efficiency because anything that's concerned with efficiency, whether it's white collar knowledge work or physical work goes to the robots.
0: What has been the most impressive VR experience or yeah. profound
1: that you've had? Yeah. So this is a good question because I saw them all and I saw this The Secret of Magic Leap which had a really good visual um Representation, but it turns out magically being augmented reality. It was it was a they call it a mixed reality because it's the kind where you have a clear glass that you're wearing, like Google Glass, but you have a full vision, and there is a synthetic or an artificial object or a, a being or something in in your vision. So we could be looking around this room, and I have these glasses on, and I could see either a virtual screen or a virtual teacup or a virtual book or a virtual animal yeah. and it would look, it would be really present. Yeah. There's a, there's
0: for people who want to just get a sample of this, I'm sure you could just Google it, but there's also a really, I thought a good piece written by Chris Dixon uh, yes. on what's coming next in computing, I think was the title, the headline. And there's a little animated gif of magically. Leap, Magic leaps. Right. A demonstration of this little sort of, uh, it right, right. looks like a Japanimation kind of
1: robot right, hanging desk. out under someone's desk. desk right. And it's very vivid. And I saw that robot. And so there are several things about the, 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 where it doesn't work, where, where they have to improve, is that that object is not lit in the same way as the rest of the room. So there's a little mismatch to do that. To, to light that thing and render it in real time with the light of the room, is we're way off on that. So what you have is you have an artificial thing that's really there. It's like having a cartoon thing. You know, it's not really real, but it really is there. It's like uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, yeah. So, but that's very useful. Like, if you're making, if you're designing a prototype, and you can actually walk around, you can have virtual screens. So they talk about this being the last screen because within it, if you wear this goggle, you can have virtual screens that are very, very highly detailed. I I could watch HD movie in it without any uh, discomfort at all. So you can have as many screens as you want and you're interacting with them, but there's, you just take off the goggles and they're gone, which means you can also make them appear anywhere you want. So this is the future of work and you can actually have teleconferencing, which is another thing where you have a virtual person next to you. And that is amazing. And it's something I would pay like, I don't know, thousands of dollars for right now, if I could have that. So were you in general, then
0: does that mean more impressed by the augmented reality or mixed reality than virtual reality?
1: Augmented or mixed reality is the more difficult of the two to do. And if you can do mixed reality, you can do VR just by turning the lights down, making it black. So technically VR is a subset of the mixed reality. Understood. Okay, so so the visual uh, accomplishment of like magic leap is there, but here's that wasn't the most amazing experience I had. It turns out that the visual is only fifty percent of your sense of, of of experience. It's the tactile. It's the audio and the feeling and using your hands and your body. And the best experience I had that was really amazing was something called the Void, based in Utah, and they are making. An arcade version of VR where um, you they provide all the equipment and you go in you pay for an experience say for half an hour you pay $30 for 30 minutes and you go in and they're gonna give you it's a full vest you're suited up and it's amazing it really is because they mix the real and the virtual and so let me give you kind of an example there's something called redirected walking. The way you redirected walking is, is imagine you have your goggle on, you see as you see something inside, and you turn 90 degrees. A hard 90 degree turn to the right. But what you'll see is only an 80 degree shift. They're cheating you 10 degrees. And they can compound that cheat so that you think you're walking in a straight line for a mile across this amazing... Cityscape. Oh, but they have you go. But you're in a going in a circle. Park. You're okay. going in a circle. That's and wild. you don't know that. And they could do redirected <laughs> touching, where you're grabbing things and you think you're grabbing different things, but it's the same thing. Or even stairs that are that are think you think you're walking up the stairs, but it's just it's just stairs that are kind of cycling totally through, rotating, right. And so, um, they're able to give you a thirty minute where you're exploring this incredible thing, and it's just a little tiny room. Wow. Okay, and here's the other cool thing they did, and it's like so you're wearing this vest, this haptic vest that's vibrating and doing all kinds of stuff, and um, they had you go up this elevator, and kind of a second story, and there's this, it was kind of an Indiana Jones demo that I saw, and there's this floor right before you, and it's kind of like um, the, it's rocky and it's like not very stable, and you you need to get across, and you're walking across, and you fall down two stories and what happens is that you're on a platform that moves six inches (laughs) but you have just fell two stories okay Wow, that sounds terrifying. Well, no,
0: it's exhilarating. (laughs) It's it's. (laughs) So does the floor just like drop out from under you, like cartoon style, and then you're like floating for a second, then you, yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) (laughs) My God. Well, um, the point of all this is they have great waivers. The 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 point of all this, because it only moves the six inches. The point of all this is that um that there are all these tricks to what we assign our own believability of what is real, where we are. And just like cinema exploits a trick of our vision. Yeah, You think Mickey Mouse, which is not a real character, is throwing a baseball, and you say that ball is really moving across the screen. But there's no movement, right? There's only a series of still images that we can assemble in our brain. And VR is exploiting that similar set of new discoveries to... So our... Bodies believe that these things are happening. Our minds know. Well, it's like going from optical illusions to full-body sensory illusions. Exactly. And this turns out to be very, very important. And so what I say is, and what I discovered from looking at this VR, is that we're moving from an Internet of information where you can get any information anywhere in the world, anybody who lives anywhere can have all the information they want, to an Internet of experiences. And this is very, very powerful. Experiences. And so... It's not just experience of you know, horror or falling, but all kinds of other experiences that we're going to have. And, and when you're there, you come out of these VR, and it's not that you remember seeing something. You remember something happening to you. It's a much, it's a much different presence. In fact, first-person shooter games turn out to be a little too emotionally exhausting when you're in VR. Produce PTSD if it gets real. It's yeah. I mean, what there there was this there was there was this uh VR uh documentary of going to a pig slaughter and you're in the shoot with the pigs. And it's just like you they said people said I could watch that, but I can't like go through it, go through it. I can't be in there. And there was another demo someone had was called Killing the Alien where you're trying, you have to stab this alien being. And the alien being, but it's it's like there's haptic involved, and And, and people. What do you mean by haptic? Haptic is this term for uh, tactile of sense, touch. They call it haptic technology, and it means that that when you grab something, there's a response to it, or you can feel it, resistance or texture. There's a texture, and this is there's a lot of work in how do you get that sense that you've grabbed something, or you can feel something. How far do you think we are from VR sex? Well, let me tell you. <laughs> Had a great one last night. Yeah. <laughs> I saw, um, I s- well, there's teled- teledildonics. Teledildonics. Uh, yeah, right. Um, Where you can remotely control <laughs> right, right. various sex um, apparatus. I saw, I, I saw these guys who, who, who have a technology for what's well, called volumetric capture. 3D volumetric capture, <laughs> which means that... Getting all sorts of terrible images in my right. head. Okay. So volumetric capture is... A, they use like seven or more cameras to uh, record a person in all their detail so that you, when you see them in VR, it's not they're moving around... And you can see every single hair, and you can so see the. I've pepper- been volumetrically captured before, but uh, and it's it, it, live or just a, 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 a snapshot. It was a still. That's a, that's the difference. Yeah, this is not a still. No,
0: understood. But even the still was right. eerie. I mean, yeah. because it was exactly me. Right. It was right, just right. mapped
1: with. If you zoomed in, you could see these tiny little grids, and it was right, like, right, Whoa. Right. Okay. So the volumetric capture of live of, of a live movement. Is, is amazingly because that, and you're in the 3D uh, presentation of it. I felt, I mean, I felt uncomfortable even getting close to that person. Like you're in their space. You just, you react to it. They really feel that they're there. And if they are giving you eye contact and a voice, you, you have a total, like again, going back to their body, maybe your mind says they're not really there, but your body is saying they are there. That's them. And it turns out, like the Second Life is now doing a VR version called Sansa, and it's a thousand times better than the old Second Life because those avatars are being—they're getting their body language from that person. They're getting the voice, and they have the eye contact. And even if their avatar is not exactly them, you can still see them with their voice and their and their body movements and their micro expressions. It really—they're really there. When do you think the
0: haptic Technology will be at a point where.
1: Okay, we're back to sex. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Dating uh, in San Francisco
0: is a real pain in the ass. I could <laughs> skip the pleasantries and just have.
1: <laughs> well, hey, well, the reason why I mentioned that the volumetric capture, I, I was saying, well, this is amazing, and they and I was saying, you know, like sex, right? And they were saying those are the first people who have come to us. All the porno. Yeah. They they were the first that so we you know we've got we've got to have that, and I think I heard that. Um, Pornhub actually has a VR channel now, or something. Don't surprise me, I mean, right? It's,
0: exactly. It's the most popular website in the world that no one admits to going to. Right, right.
1: <laughs> and I mean, they've been a way ahead in terms of like uh, their their use of, of video, what do you call it? video grammar, the uh, summaries and stuff like that. So um, I haven't seen it personally, but uh, I, I I I think that to answer your question, I'm sure that right now there's probably one or two places that have probably put this together in a you know so would you say if if you had if you were a betting man if you had to be right would
0: you say available to those who can afford it in five years oh
1: absolutely less than five years absolutely less than five years these uh you know know, the void is is uh, i think they're they're already opened it's 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 here um To outfit your whole body like this is is it's doable now. I I think this is going to be things are gonna be mostly regulated by economics and then the law, like where where this is gonna come into. Things are gonna get really really. Like is there someone on the other end, or is this is this like assimilation, is this AI?
0: Right. Are there actors like are Diamond there, Age, Neil Stevenson? Are there people who are right, outfitted right, right. with their own haptic suits who
1: you're interacting with? In which case, right. what types of laws apply? Right. And, and who's, who's, if you're different states? Um, so, so uh, yeah, I think this will be a very sticky problem that. <laughs> nice. <be> up. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: what are people worried about right now that you think they shouldn't be worried about? Oh, this just and I, the only reason I ask, that. Yeah. yeah what and they
1: shouldn't be worried about. Well, I, I, I think the idea of the, uh, the AI is taking over and killing us all cross that one off. Um, I think they should be worried about GMOs. I think cross that one off. Um, they should not be worried. They about should GMOs. not be worried about GMOs. We, we genetically modify all the crops that you're eating. Um, we don't do it. We do them in different ways. We do them through breeding, whatever it is, but they're all, they're all been modified. Um, and actually, if you want to modify a crops, modifying their genes with CRISPR is a lot better than trying to modify them with breeding because breeding, you have no control over what happens. It is a much more elegant process. So CRISPR, you're not concerned about? No. There are things I am concerned about. In fact, I just saw a, a documentary last night which will be released pretty soon. It's called Zero Days. And it's the theme of it. It's very well done, not sensational. It looks at the... S- Stutnex virus, which was a computer virus that was invented, developed by the uh, U.S. and Israel to um, demolish the the uranium um, processing centrifuges in Iran. So the the message is, they were looking at, can you really destroy physical things with a computer virus? And the answer is yes. You absolutely can. We're at the point where you can actually... Um, affect the physical infrastructure with c- computers. And then the question is, what are the rules for that? Yeah, that the, and is that like, an act of war? Like the Geneva Convention. Right. And there, and there turns out there is no rules, and yet the U.S. and others are developing these technologies, and nobody wants to talk about them because they're all classified, and therefore um, no one wants to admit to it, therefore you can't have the conversation about it. And yet... Iran retaliated, they made, the, they made the largest cyber army in response to that, uh, the efforts to take them down, which did not work in the end. And um, so, so there already is uh, cyber warfare going on, but it's not being talked about, it's not being admitted, the U.S. government won't talk about the offensive. And um, there's all the other countries who are now building capacity. And what is the rules? Is, is it okay to disrupt the, uh, you know, the banking system, you know, there's going to be collateral damage. What's accepted? And I think that we don't have any rules for cyber war is something I'm really worried about. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, I remember
0: at a uh, conference a few years ago, this very, very well-respected technologist got up and talked about precisely this cyber warfare and, some of the scarier scenarios and uh, potential uh, tactics that could be used. For instance, if there were a natural disaster in San Francisco and people went to Google, assuming that there was still internet connectivity to try to determine how to respond, you know, if someone could uh, initiate the disaster somehow uh, and then also figure out a way to present certain search results that were misinformation, you, I mean, that's, Maybe even more elaborate than it's necessary. Like maybe that's the 007 bad guy. Like I'm going to leave you here with a sophisticated laser setup while I go have a sandwich. Mr. Bond, I'll see you in 20 <laughs> minutes and then he gets away. Maybe it's a lot simpler than that, right? Maybe it's taking out electrical grids with different types of uh, yeah. vir- viruses or electromagnetic pulse weaponry. Or for that matter, I mean, I've been astonished at how vulnerable a lot of the stuff is to just long range... Uh, marksmanship, for instance. I mean, yeah. it's like old technology yeah, applied yeah. to an increasingly
1: uh, fragile, in some capacities, Internet of Things. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, so, um, uh, and then there, it, they, when you introduce AI into that, as the U.S. Pentagon has just got some funding to have AI do this kinds of stuff to to, to weaponize AI. Basically, I, I'm also worried about that. I, I, you know, kill decisions. This idea of uh, we have right now we have legally mandated assassinations in the U S we, we have, we have assassinated U S citizens. Okay. So could, you elaborate on that with the drones, the, the drones, got it. The, the drone program will take out a particular individual. So we killed, um, what's his name? Uh, the, the, the he was an American citizen in Yemen, I guess. and, they targeted him and they killed him without, there was no trial, there was nothing. So we, we, we now have assassination. But these drones usually have people back in Nevada um, steering them. But um, there's, and, and they usually have um, generals and there's a whole chain of command involved in, to do the kill decision. But increasingly there's, there's, you know, pressure to expand this kind of warfare because you prevent, you don't have to have troops on the ground the American public seem much more sympathetic to sponsoring warfare, this. And as that increases, there's the need to have autonomous. So you don't, you know, that's a very long feedback loop to come back and have humans decide and this or that. If you could have autonomous AI-driven drones that didn't need that, then they could actually be making these decisions. That's scary. That's very scary.
0: Do you do you think just because this is also a topic of of common debate in Silicon Valley in the AI circles? So there are some people who would say, well, if you look at DeepMind or some of these other AI uh focused groups in the US, they have ethics committees, they are collaborating with one another to look at safeguards. The real people you need to be worried about are sort of the uh the fast moving solo acts in places like China in places yeah. like Phil in the blank who do not have that kind of safety first mentality. And people would argue maybe that's not the case in the U S either in certain places. But, uh, if someone's going to cause a big mess with
1: AI, who do you think the, the most, lo- what are the characteristics? Of you that? know, AI is still so early in it that, that, that I, 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 I wouldn't have I guess, but I I do acknowledge and I would emphasize that this is a global enterprise and the Chinese are very keen on making AI and the three ingredients you need for AI these days is uh, these uh, deep neural nets like DeepMind and then you need uh, huge uh, farms of GPUs Graphical processing units, which are been commoditized by the video game industry. It's like and Nvidia. NVIDIA chips, yeah. That's the, it turns out there are parallel processors that are really affordable. So before AI was done on supercomputer parallels that would cost millions and millions of dollars. And then it turns out that these little video chips that you make for video games were parallel processing and they were really cheap. So now they buy these big farms of these cheap video game processors. So you need lots of those. And then you need big data. Big data is sort of the rocket fuel and so the companies like Baidu and Alibaba who have big data are actually able to do um this kind of AI right now and I think um there's no so there's no there's no there's no monopoly on AI right now and uh, china the europe even Japan will all get into this business and um anything i mean i would expect just given history that there'll be a disaster it's it's some you know an ai disaster
0: of some sort i mean it's inevitable right i mean and it's not to right. say that ai shouldn't be pursued it's just right. like anything else i mean right. someone will abuse it if you're going to have large-scale right, right. water projects right
1: <laughs> there's going to be some horrible flood that'll kill a bunch of people and right or fill in the blank disaster right and so we have to be ready for that and not uh, freak out uh about it which is what i think what that will be one of the tendencies. Well, okay, stop AI research. No more federal funding AI. Those are that will that will also happen too. People will respond to that by saying we have to stop AI. What if you
0: had to again sort of play Nostradamus uh, a little bit? What do you think the first few big wins of AI will be, so, where where people
1: will really step back and go, whoa? So, uh, so uh, uh, yes. It's going to be, the well, two things. I think there will be these huge, huge, big wins. But what's very curious about this is that whenever these wins happen, as they have in the past, then immediately we don't call it AI. AI is only what we can't do. What we hope to do is call AI, and once we do it, it's called machine learning. Okay? And so the first big win will be like, will be um, a translation. Okay. Real, so we'll have a little device that we can wear in our ear, and it'll hear you speaking Chinese, and it'll whisper into me English. Okay, and then th- th- we'll have that. And um, I don't know, five years or so. But we're not going to call it AI. That's, no, that's not AI. That's just, that's just, you know, that's just. They're just dumb computers doing this stuff. Mm. It's no longer AI. People don't think of Siri as AI. Oh that's just that's just machine learning it's just serious driving the car that's no longer ai this is, of course of course computers can drive a car of course they can play chess cuz once it happens it's like of course it's just that's obviously not ai ai is sort of always what we can't do and so there will be these wins like like you know perfect translation um, that that will be very common and talking to your these uh, assistant bots that's the other thing you know, you'll have these conversations with do this, do that echo. I was you know, say, sounds a lot like do, do early this, do that. iteration of echo. Yeah. Right. Okay. Is that AI? Do people think of it as AI? No, they don't. They don't that's not AI. That's just echo, whatever it is. <laughs> and so I think, um, that conversation is the interface mostly to AI for a very long time. And we'll get really good at that. And, um, I think, um, uh, uh and people will ignore it. I mean, people will become invisible to them. And I think most of the AI will be invisible like we're talking about Amazon web services. It's going to be behind the scenes. It's going to be very particular. I mean, right now your calculator smarter than you are in arithmetic. <laughs> that's it doesn't freak you out, right? right? You think, you know, right? That's great. Google is better than you in recall. And so these we have these very specific artificial smartness. And that's where a lot of this is is like most of the AI we're going to make is not like human intelligence. That's why we're making it. The whole point is to think different, to make things that think differently than us. The reason why we want these AI uh, to drive cars is because they aren't driving like humans. They aren't worried about whether they left a the stove on or you know, having an argument with the garage. They are just driving better than we can drive. And that's... So we want to make... We'll make a lot of stuff that does things that are not, I mean, like when Google is remembering all the web pages in the world, that's inhumane. That's, I mean, that's inhuman. It's not anything we could do. And, and so a lot of this stuff will be, and once we see them, the machines doing it, we'll say, well, obviously we weren't the only ones who could do that, but now it's all in retrospect. Right. Do you,
0: this is a total left turn, but do you journal? Do you, uh, is that a practice that you have or not
1: really? It's an occasional practice. And um, something uh, that I do occasionally um, at night, late at night. When do you do it? Or late, late at night. Meaning what triggers it? Like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to figure out. What are the occasions out. on which that you, you decide um, to journal? Yeah, it, it, the, the, I haven't been able to determine the, the trigger, but sometimes I'll just be seized of this kind of like, I need to sit down and just you know journal stuff and write stuff and, doodle and it's sort of um i haven't been able to detect a pattern but i have a book that i use and just it's called late night and it's i usually do it late at night very late and i'm just kind of i don't know i'm just kind of maybe there's a buffer that gets filled or something Um, you have to you have
0: to to delete the download folder exactly (laughs) Startup disk almost full Uh, but i get this into my journal uh what's change in your life or behavioral modification are you proudest of in the last say year or recent memory and which are you, which habits or behaviors you most, uh, are you trying to change? Good
1: question. I think I'm, uh, working on, um, I think it was like Mark Zuckerberg who had this kind of like, he was going to give a thank you note like every day for 30 days or something. So this idea of, of, um, consciously really trying to express gratitude mm-hmm. in a kind of a, a disciplined way is something I've been, I've been working on to try to make it more of a habit. How do you express gratitude? Is it a phone call? Is it a text message? Generally has been an email. I'm not a phone person. I'm not a voice. I don't like voicemail. I don't like talking on the phone. I, I came into my, into my professional life I was basically noticed online in writing short telegraphic email ish stuff. So for some reason, email is my medium Mm -hmm. and I'm I'm most comfortable, um, with, uh, email. So gratitude. Well, on that, on that
0: note, I want to thank you for taking time to have yet another jam session. I always have (laughs) a blast. And, uh, what, what are you up to right now? What would you like people to check out? Uh, where can they find you? Yeah.
1: So I have this book that will be released June 6th. It's called The Inevitable, published by Viking. Um, it's, uh, I think, a pretty good outline of the technological trends for the next 20 or 30 years at the highest level, things that we can't ignore and that we really should be embracing. And I think if you are interested in sort of what's coming – um, that you really find it very useful cause it's not really technical. It's, it's at a high level. And, um, if you're looking to where things will be in 20 years, I think I have a pretty good map of where that's going. And where can uh, so people could, I'm,
0: I'm sure by the time they, they hear this, uh, grab it on Amazon, Right. Uh,
1: And, uh, where else?
0: KK.org.
1: Yeah. So KK.org is a home as my homepage and where I hang out and there'll be links if you want other languages or the audible version, the Kindle. Um, I think that all should be listed there. And, um, I may even have a calendar ish thing going and, um, I'm going to be showing what you're up to in terms of speaking engagements or whatever. Right. And in July, I'm going to be doing a bunch of stuff of, um, basically, uh, appearing on a gazillion podcasts mm-hmm. uh, that I've dedicated to that for the month of July. Which is why I like to do mine early. Yes, exactly.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, another exclusive Tim <laughs> Ferriss show opportunity.
1: This is an exclusive. I am so delighted, Tim, that you, that, um, you reached out and made the invitation to be at your glorious home. And I, um, I'm
0: thrilled to have you
1: here. And I hope, hope that it was useful to the, to the listeners out there because we did kind of go all over the place. Um, That's why they come. They come, yeah. they come for the OCD plus the ADHD
0: <laughs> with a dash of hopefully, definitely intelligence from my guests and occasionally a glimmer of something approaching uh semi intelligence on my part. But, uh, Everybody check out KK.org. It's full of all sorts of things that I've recommended many, many times over the years, including 1000 true fans, of course, and much, much more than that. The quantified self, everything can be found somewhere at the hub. That is KK.org. We're on social media. If somebody wanted to say hello, would be the best place to say hello.
1: I do look at Twitter, Twitter stream and I'm Kevin Two Kelly, the number two. Um, I have Facebook, which I don't uh, look at as much. But actually, I do look at Google+. You do? I do because I find that the comments and the, uh, the conversation is very, very high quality. Even though right. there's not that many people, those that are there are very active and I pay attention. So Kevin Kelly, if they just search Kevin Kelly yeah, on Google+. Yeah, I'm the blog? Kevin Kelly on Google+.
0: Perfect. All right. And we will put that in the show notes. So everybody listening, you can find everything we've talked about assuming I can track it down <laughs> in the show notes at 4 com forward slash podcast. You can also find links to our previous conversations. We had two very, very fun conversations where we went into a lot of Kevin's bio and asked a lot of my usual rapid fire questions that we've already covered uh, previously. And you can find that and much, much more at 4 com forward slash podcast. And Kevin, firstly, thank you very much also for, for taking the time that I, I always have so much fun. And to everyone listening, as always, and until next time, thank you so much for making The Tim Ferriss Show part of your daily podcast experience. Hey, guys, this is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, this is Five Bullet Friday. Do you want to get a short email from me? Would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend? And Five Bullet Friday is a very short email where I share Check it out, just go to fourhourworkweek.com, that's fourhourworkweek.com all spelled out, and just drop in your email and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it.